Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. If you talk about tigers in Hong Kong, then people mostly know two specific cases. There's one in 1915 where two police officers were killed. The tiger was shot and paraded on a pole, which has become a famous photograph. The second incident was in 1942 outside the Stanley civilian internment camp during the Japanese military occupation. Graphic designer and author John Seiki has spent months researching tiger sightings and attacks in Hong Kong and is writing a book on the subject. He's also the author of the novel The Tiger Hunters of Taiyo, which has an imaginary tiger in it. He's keen to talk to people who may have seen a tiger in rural Hong Kong, say back in the 60s, or had a relative who did. I'll give you John's contacts at the end of the programme. John Seiki has also been connecting the dots on the sightings that are mentioned in numerous newspaper reports, which suggest that the South China Tiger was a regular visitor to Hong Kong. He starts by telling me about missionary Harry Caldwell, who lived in Fujian province in the early part of the 20th century. He would kill 48 tigers before swapping his gun for a camera. Harry Caldwell apparently was the man that people contacted when they wanted to shoot a tiger in mainland China. So I found his book. This is called Blue Tiger. He wrote it while he was a missionary from the 1910s through the 20s. He was a missionary in Fujian, and he found that um, if he shot a tiger, his missionary work could go a lot further. And so he seemed very, very committed to the, his missionary cause, but he became really famous as a, as a tiger shooter, and he killed 48 tigers. And at the same time, he became a very intimate sort of expert of tigers, intimate because he used to sit in tiger lairs waiting for them for hours and waiting for the right opportunity to shoot. Sometimes he'd be watching a tiger for about two or three hours before he could find himself in the exact right position to pull the trigger because he didn't want to take any chances. So he actually got to know them quite well. So that's a fascinating book about the South China tiger, which seems pretty much clearly the, the species of tiger that was coming to Hong Kong. Why did you choose tigers? What, what's your fascination with them? It's very difficult to say that because I'm obviously just very interested in the Hong Kong wildlife and we all start off by noticing the pigs and the snakes and then we get to the monkeys and then you sort of dig in a little bit and you've got your civet cats, your monk, monk jacks. Then there's the pangolins, which is incredible that, you know, some of them might still actually be here. And then just reading through the literature, you come across the fact that there were tigers and that's, that's the first surprise. And I just started following whatever I found and, and just found more information. Now that resulted in a novel, didn't it? Yeah, so the novel's called The Tiger Hunters of Tao and Tiger Part is a background narrative device. But that came because I found this article that looked at tiger sightings beyond the famous two. The, the famous two being the 1915 Shangshui Tiger, which uh, killed at least two Hong Kong policemen, and then the 1942 Stanley Tiger, which was shot outside the Japanese prison camp, and you can still see the skin of that tiger at the Tinha Temple in Stanley. So those are the two famous ones. This article examined what the other tiger stories that were around and introduced to me, personally, for the first time, the idea that the tigers that were shot weren't some remnant of a sort of a relic 
group of tigers that just lived in Hong Kong, but were in fact part of a, a stream of tigers that had been visiting Hong Kong throughout the first half of the uh, of the 20th century. And so that's why I used that idea for the tiger hunters, and I had an imaginary tiger that was turning up in Lantau in the 1950s. But now I've started looking at the real cases, and I found that actually, coincidentally and luckily for me, 1950s was totally plausible for, for Lantau or any part of Hong Kong anyway. So that worked out quite well. Yeah, I mean, from a land perspective, there's no reason geographically why there's not a physical border that, that would prevent tigers coming in. Yep. Um, and also, uh, the sea is not uh, an issue for them either, as they were known to swim across base, in the same way that we now know that the boars uh, are doing the same thing around the Hong Kong Islands as well. And then you, you just, if you think about that and then think about tiger paws, I mean, they really are paddles. So I think they, they could swim okay. So you've looked at 1915 and 1942 as a starter. So if we can just talk about those well-known ones first and then move on to how you've catalogued some of the others. With the 1915 tiger, one thing you can do is go to a Happy Valley Cemetery and you can find the tomb of Ernest Goucher. And there you can learn that he was 21 years old when he was mauled by the tiger and then he la later died from the wounds. Another person who was attacked was Ratan Singh, who was an Indian constable, and he died straight away from his wounds on the day, which was March the 9th, 1915, at Shangshui, when the small party of policemen went after this tiger. Uh, apparently the tiger was hiding in a bush, and somebody threw a stone in to disturb it, and that's when the tiger jumped out, and apparently PC Gouch sort of fell into a ditch, the tiger mauled him, and then went on. Another policeman... Birmingham, he killed the tiger. Um, they, they tied the tiger up on a pole and a very famous photograph was taken, which is a great picture actually. And incidentally, there was some huge copyright row that went off uh, in the weeks after that. So, uh, some shop just printed their own versions of that um, picture. <laughs> Want and, to make uh, postcards and things. And, yeah, that's yeah. right. And uh, the photographer took it to court. And it, that, that was covered in more detail. The court case of the photograph was covered in more detail than the tiger, actually. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I didn't know that. I mean, as journalists, that's really interesting yeah, that, that yeah. he was hot on that one. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, still, this one was, was big. So we had reports about uh, PC Goucher like, improving... Two nights later in the hospital, his condition was improving, um, but then on the th after the third night, he died from his wounds. That was quite a few years before the introduction of penicillin, so you know, I personally wonder whether he would have survived if, if he had access to penicillin. The funeral was covered uh, when we learned a bit more about, about Goucher. He was from Nottingham, and he, he had been stationed in Central earlier uh, but he'd asked to be moved because a friend of his got killed and um, I think he was uh, quite shaken by that and it seemed that people thought that you know a bit of time out in the countryside would have been good for him so it's unfortunate that he came across that tiger. A few months before the actual uh, tragic incident there was a report in January about Goucher going out to look for the tiger that was in, yeah, in January so that this probably the same tiger was obviously scaring people and, you know, had been noted for a good few weeks before it was actually caught. Now you've got, I mean, other than 1915 and 1942, which are the two famous cases, you pretty much had a blank canvas in a way because it's not something that has been studied in any systematic way, is it? Yeah, not as far as I know. 
And I wouldn't want to claim that I'm doing a systematic or scientific search right now. I would be really happy, it'd be fantastic if some budding biological historian or some such discipline, someone from some such discipline, like picked up on this idea and actually did a, the real sort of rigorous statistical work. But what I did was to go to the Hong Kong Library and I got onto the library archives that you could get onto the multimedia information system and I just entered the word tiger. And then it asked me which decade, so I went to 1910 to 1920, and then the story started coming up. South China Morning Post, 28th of June, 1910. The Kowloon Tiger is dead. Who will write its epitaph? After all the scares which he has given military officers and the people in the new territory in the vicinity of Kowloon City, he is no more. Before his end came, he was hotly chased by sportsmen from Hong Kong, who went in the hope of meeting with new experiences, and the fatal shot was fired by Sergeant Devney of the Hong Kong Police. October the 7th, 1912, the Hong Kong Tiger, stripes near the golf course. Mr Eldridge of the Public Works Department reports that he saw the mysterious Hong Kong Tiger near Deepwater Bay Golf Course on Tuesday afternoon. Mr Eldridge interviewed by a representative of the South China Morning Post, says that he and a friend were out on the Wong Lai Chung Aberdeen Road with their sporting guns and a dog. Turning the bend of the road just above the golf links, a tiger leapt from the bank above onto the roadway about 10 yards ahead of them. They were taken by surprise, but Mr Eldridge had time to level his rifle and fire some shot into the animal ere it bounded with a growl into the brushwood on the other side of the roadway and disappeared from view. The dog made a dash after the tiger, but was cooled off. The tiger appeared to be about four feet long and stood about two and a half feet high, and Mr Eldridge is quite confident that this is the brute which has played havoc at different times with the livestock belonging to the inhabitants of the locality. We hope to hear of a tiger hunt being organised during the holiday season and Mr Eldridge will willingly join the party. They're quite difficult to read because they're just basically photographs of old newspapers. The letters can be quite sort of degraded sometimes and you have to look at it very carefully. But I started jotting down what was there. And so, for example, in the 1910s, I got about 90 reports in my spreadsheet and I separated them out into 14 possible separate tiger visits in that decade. We've got two confirmed deaths, which we've just talked about, Goucher and Singh. But there were also two other less reported deaths, which sometimes they'd call it rumours or, you know, unconfirmed. And, of course, from 1915, we've got the confirmed tiger. But apart from that, for example, two, 1916, the Castle Peak tiger reported January 31. Someone saw a tiger carrying a pig. Then we get two peak tigers, and they generated a lot of copy, actually, because when tigers appear in posh places, there's a lot more words that are written about them. So the 1914 tiger peaks first started appearing in March of that year, and it carried on through to, to May, uh, last sighting Barker Road. 
And in between, we had detailed descriptions from places like the junction of uh, Robinson and Park Roads. A hunting party went out on April the 25th. 50 soldiers were carrying 12 guns between them. And generally, these hunts were not successful. Um, the tiger is a very uh, stealthy beast, and it takes an expert such as Harry Caldwell from China to actually know how to, to get one, which often involved a hell of a lot of patience. Now, in terms of the tiger itself, I mean, what am I imagining here? I mean, I know the Bengal tiger, um, and uh, you know, which is quite a large beast. Is that comparable to what we've got here in South China? It's definitely comparable, but the general thinking is that it was the South China tiger which was making its appearance in Hong Kong. So it's stripy? And it's definitely stripy, yes. Although, I, I think, you know, tigers, like a lot of uh, other animals, there are sort of individual variations, but generally I think it's fair to say it's a stripy tiger. And it was probably last sort of viably reproducing in the wild, possibly up to the mid-90s, but it was probably doomed from the 60s and the 70s. Interesting. Are you quite sad that it no longer exists? I am sad. I am definitely sad that the true wild version of it doesn't exist. Um, there are programs to try and revive it, I believe, in the mainland. There was a handful of captive South China tigers that mainland authorities are trying to use as a, a gene base. And there have been various plans, I'm not sure exactly what the status is now, but to create wildlife sanctuaries where reintroduced South China tigers could breed. But I don't think that would ever be the same thing as the actual wild version of the tiger which roamed around wherever it wanted to. And that's yeah. how we got them in Hong Kong. <laughs> I get a lot of this information from Chris Coggins, who wrote The Tiger and the Pangolin, about nature, culture and conservation in China. I had a good conversation with him by Skype uh, back in June. And he described to me the, the heartland of the South China tiger was Fujian. Uh, Fujian was really important. Hunan, Jiangxi and Guangdong. And so the point about Hong Kong is that Hong Kong is a part of Guangdong. We're a small blip on the periphery of tiger country. And if you go back like hundreds of years, then, you know, the, the South China tiger actually would have met the Siberian tiger and the Bengal tiger over from India. And we have the tigers basically that were from Indonesia and coming up through Southeast Asia. They're, they're recognized now as different species, but... There would have been a time when the tigers more or less roamed around connecting all these islands because of the environment at that time made it possible to do so. And then with human encroachment and development, these different species of tigers became isolated from each other. There's a time when the gene pool would have been completely mixed. That's to, uh, as far as I can see, that's a school of thought amongst some genetic biologists these days. That's quite interesting. To me, Chris Coggins seemed to think you know, to be leaning towards that side. And, and it is a matter of leaning rather than just stating these things as facts. As you get with cats and dogs, you get different breeds that have got different shapes and colours, but obviously not as, as pronounced. But, you know, tigers can also differentiate. So the South China tiger is considered to be smaller than, say, the Siberian tiger. The Siberian tiger will have a much larger range because there's, there's less food in between and more just forest. So it, we would have to roam... For 
further and it was just a bigger more robust animal whereas then you get the sort of uh, Javan tiger is considered the smallest because it, it lived in various dense tropical jungle where I'm sure it would just have to travel 10 metres and it can find something to eat straight away so South China tiger is somewhere in between it had been noted that they had quite broad stripes but I'd, I, I would imagine most of us who are not experts wouldn't be able to tell these these apart when we saw them <laughs> yes it wouldn't be my first priority if i came across one yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you just you just run <laughs> what are you supposed to do if you meet a tiger well apparently you should run downhill this is something that my friend Anne told me she asked her mother about tiger experiences her mother was from patsing leng and she remembers going out onto the hills with gongs to scare tigers away and her mother saw a tiger uh, that's my friend Anne's grandmother and Anne's mother herself she didn't see a tiger herself but she saw a calf that had been killed so Anne's mum so she grew up in uh, Tinkok village in the Taipo area and it's overlooked by Patsing Leng mountain range and so she never saw a tiger herself but her uh, Anne's grandmother did when she went up Patsing Leng to cut firewood uh, they stuck to the same area, which was about 30 minutes hike uphill from the village. And Anne's mum believes she was between 12 and 14 years old when her mother, Anne's grandmother, saw the tiger, which makes it 1950 to 1952. Her grandmother was terrified she ran back down to the village. Around the same time, the tiger had eaten a cow and a pig from Tincock village. Anne's mother knows the daughter of the family who lost the cow. The family took the cattle up to the mountains to graze each morning and they made their way back to the village at dusk. One day one of the smaller cows didn't return. My mum went along with the small search party to look for it. They carried lanterns and loud gongs to make noise to scare away the tiger. They eventually found the remains of the cow and my mum said there'd been an official examination of the carcass which confirmed a tiger attack. The pig was taken from its sty in the village um, the villagers had heard the pig squealing as it was carried away in the direction of the mountain and she recalled another lady had seen a tiger sleeping one day when she was in the mountains. So she, was very, she grew up very near tigers and village wisdom was to run downhill and the theory being that the tiger's front legs are shorter than their back legs and so they're very awkward uh, descending. And that's funny because Harry Caldwell, as he describes exactly the same thing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'd want to test it myself, but there was a story of Harry Caldwell being caught on a hillside without his gun one day when a tiger jumped out at him, and the only thing he had was a, an umbrella. And so Harry just opened and closed his umbrella, flapping it at the tiger, and the tiger presumably had never seen anything like that before in its life, and it was enough for the tiger to just back off and probably thinking, well, this is a, whatever this is, I don't like it, I'm going. Now, Coggins actually, he looks uh, particularly at South China rather than Hong Kong, obviously, but over the past centuries, he can actually show when tiger sightings are peaking. Yeah, that's right. So he used what he called gazetteer records, which seem to be very detailed local government records that was, by law, Chinese officials had to keep. And tiger sightings were amongst the things that were, were being tracked. And Chris Coggins went into these records in Fujian and he, he charted the incidents, which the number of them were quite low in the sort of first millennium. So these go back 1,900 years, these records. 
and uh, then they start going up through the 1400s into 1500s at a time when um, there was a lot of migration going on from the north to south of the Yangtze River and also there were periods when people were moved from the coast inland which put more pressure on the inland sort of highlands where the tigers lived. But it wasn't just the tigers, it was the other animals, the muntjacs, the porcupines, pangolins. These are all the animals which actually we have in Hong Kong today now, but which the tigers would go for. And it was quite interesting because the tiger incidents went up, but it seemed like the tigers didn't necessarily follow the smaller animals up the hills, and instead they just found little ravines and pockets to shelter in as humans came closer and closer. And one theory is that the tigers were not as affected by human encroachment, basically because they could just eat the livestock that the humans brought with them, and then when that wasn't enough, they could eat the people. So it was only later on when the sort of human capacity to actually to get rid of tigers became more effective that the tigers actually lost out. So that was in the 40s and the 50s. Interesting, so really quite recent in the last 100 years. Yes, absolutely. So Coggins cites the number of an estimated 4,000 South China tigers in the 1950s, and I've seen that figure quite a lot across the board. And then that number goes down to maybe 1,000 towards the late 60s. Some of these estimates were made by the number of pelts that were being sold. So when the communists gained control in the 49 and then in the 50s as they sort of established, consolidated the sort of control, the tiger became officially a pest that needed to be to be hunted down and there was the kill the tiger movement, subtly named. And also people were very militarised after years of guerrilla war, well, years of war with Japan and guerrilla war and civil war. So there were not just your traditional hunting rifles, but they had machine guns and grenades and that's what they used in the 50s to go after the tigers. The skins were being collected by what seems to be official bureaus and um, were being exported. And I think So it was seen as a business plan as well? It was. It, was, I th- I th- it seems like the business side of it was a kind of an incidental, opportunistic thing. I think mainly they wanted to get rid of the tiger because they saw it as a hampering development. Now, when you were looking through right from the 1910s using this MMIS, so the multimedia system that is fantastic at the... um, I mean, it's not comprehensive, but it's really a very, very good start. You've got a lot of uh, China Mail, also Hong Kong Telegraph. So some of these early papers, and it goes... Hong Kong Daily Press, and it goes well into the nine, back into the 19th century. So for me, it's, it's been a, a remarkable tool. The other thing is also, for me, it's always interesting, the language. Um, so, for example, if you were to talk these days about uh, the tiger, and, you know, if you've got the WWF talking about the tiger, it would be in terms of ecosystems, environmentalism, I would imagine, sustainability, all of that would mm. be the bywords going with that, whereas back in the... <laughs> 20s, 30s, oh, we, well, we shot them and put them on a rope or put them on a, on a stick and, mm. and we're going to use it for a fur coat, you know. So, yeah. I mean, the mentality is, is, has changed completely. So, what's some of the vocab of these early newspapers? I mean, did it, was, it, was it quite entertaining? Uh, yes, absolutely entertaining. They're real gems. You know, it's not just the words that were used about the tiger but it's also the the racism i mean it is there is so much racism in these 
reports. And tied in with that is a constant tension between an intense interest in tigers at the same time as there being a layer of scepticism. Um, and I think that, you know, people want to talk about uh, amazing beasts, but at the same time, they don't want to be seen to be gullible. So if a tiger is reported by, say, um, a, a grass cutter on a hill, then um, the tiger might be in quotation marks and it will be a claim. But if a police inspector with a name like Smith <laughs> has seen it, then it will be fact. Um, and and that, that goes throughout the, early, uh, the first half of the 20th century. Uh, I've got one here. Uh, Though the tiger was not seen by the Europeans, there could be little doubt that the coolies had seen something that frightened them. And also the other thing about it, which is more, gets more serious, is when we have a death or a, you know, a rumour of a death, we don't really get to the bottom of it unless it is from the sort of uh, colonial Europeans. So here we've got police have received no information corroborating the rumour that a coolie had been killed in the Pokfulan Valley and partly devoured. Now, you know, today's journalist, I think, would go out and check that. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't get any more on this. Oh. It's a rumour that um, the police hasn't corroborated. Well, the police, I don't think, heard everything because people didn't necessarily go to report everything to the police. For me, it's quite an interesting journey to sort of explore that sort of dif different layers of society in Hong Kong where there's, there, on the one hand, there's a... Uh, sort of people on the ground working on the hills working with the animals who have got a very strong sense of what's going on around them and then you have people living at the peak <laughs> uh, and, and just uh, being driven down to their offices or going down to their offices on the peak tram and the, the new territories are very far away and then like I mentioned before it's only when the uh, appearances start coming into places like the peak that we get, we get detailed reports including a group of people on the peak tram who were terrified one night because a tiger roared just outside as the tram went past. So, yeah, both the attitude towards the tigers, which essentially was seen as subject of sport. There were quite a few appeals when there were tiger sightings. There'll be appeals in the newspaper to the sporting young man of the colony. This is your chance to go out and bag a tiger. Regularly, there'll be appeals to go and do that over in Guangzhou as well, where there were many more tiger reports, and which were also reported quite enthusiastically within Hong Kong. So, but what dates are you talking about if, you, if you're being invited to go over to Guangzhou? So I would say the first half of the 20th century, yeah, the, the 10s, the 20s and the 30s. There was also an account in about 1907 from Macau where... And, and again, again, yes, people from Hong Kong were being called over. Now's your chance to go and bag a tiger. In Macau, in a village just north of Macau, so technically it would probably be sort of Zhuhai area now, there was a tiger incident. I say incident because I don't know whether it's a tiger or a group of tigers, but about 60 people of a village had died. Wow. Yeah, yeah, a big number just across the Pearl River. And there was a letter to one of the Hong Kong newspapers just, just begging people to come over with their guns to just try and finish that, that terrible um, tiger onslaught that they were experiencing there. Now, you're looking for more information. Yes. Um, so you're, you're creating a blog, um, and yes. that's going to be with Blacksmith Books, who published uh, Tiger Hunters of Tayo. 
Yes, and what we want to do is find as many stories as we can of, of people's family stories. I'm sure there are people out there whose parents remember tigers. They might have heard one roar or they might have been brought up like my friend's mother to be careful when you go out on the hills. They might have seen tigers. I'm hoping to meet someone who saw a tiger in Hong Kong and I'm, I'm convinced after seeing all these archives that it's theoretically possible. I'm getting closer, so I've got my friend's mum who saw a tiger's dinner and I've got a, another friend whose father saw a, a calf fall off a mountain um, after it had been attacked by a tiger, apparently, and um, I'm going to go and meet him and uh, talk to him in a few weeks' time. And so those are almost the first two people I asked who I knew whose families uh, had like a, several generations of living in Hong Kong villages. And, you know, I, I got a result straight away. So I'm sure there's, that there's, there's more out there. John Seiki there, talking about tigers in Hong Kong. If you've seen a tiger yourself or have an anecdote or know of someone who did in Hong Kong, then please get in touch with John. His email is john.seiki at gmail.com and Seiki is spelt S-A-E-K-I. So that's S-A-E-K-I. So john.seiki at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.